Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to the final Premier Christian Newscast of the year. I'm Tim Wyatt, and this week we're looking back at the stories which have fired our imaginations and caught our attentions over the past 12 months. When it comes to the church world, there has been no shortage of headline-grabbing stories to keep us occupied, from pastors falling from grace to the endless rows over LGBT issues. We've seen iconic church leaders pass on the baton to the next generation, and in some cases pass away. There have been long-awaited set-piece events and entirely unexpected crises. So I invited Sam Hales and Emma Fowle from the Premier Christianity magazine team to join me to take a look at 2022 in church news and pick out some of the stories which most fascinated, outraged, saddened and encouraged them. See you all in 2023. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Sam and Emma. Uh, listen to the podcast, familiar with who you are, of course, uh, from Premier Christianity. Um, Sam, can I come to you first? Uh, could you share a story that kind of caught your eye or is kind of stuck in the memory from the last 12 months? Well, because my memory is so bad, let's start with the most recent one. <laughs> the sen- the census um, is, a, is a new story. It's just happened in the last uh, couple of weeks, but it's very, very significant because it really confirms trends that I think a lot of Christians are already aware of, which is certainly institutional Christianity, church attendance uh, has been on the, on the decline for, for a long time. But I guess what was noteworthy about this census is, is for the first time ever, really, less than half of the UK population identify as Christian. And we've covered a lot of the analysis on this. And and one of the first things that that people are keen to point out is we may only be seeing the death of nominalism, which means that, um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, someone might tick the Christian box on the census because they were christened or because they go to church once or twice a year. Or even I've heard it said, people say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I'm English. And uh, what we've seen is is a maturity now and an honesty now that I think is quite welcome, that those sorts of people are far less likely to tick Christian, which I think is a good thing. It's saying, actually, yeah, I might have been Christian as a child, but I don't really have a faith today. I don't often go to church, so I'm not going to tick Christian. So I think that's one analysis on what we've seen. But it is, um, on the one hand, it's 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 a trend that's been around a long time. It's not surprising. On the other hand, it is quite a symbolic moment, isn't it? To now say, um, if you were measuring us as a Christian country on the basis that most people identify as Christian, then that's no longer the case. Uh, so if that was the metric you were using to, to argue we're a Christian country, then we no longer are. And that has implications, doesn't it? People have suggested for things like the establishment of the Church of England, bishops in the House of Lords, or maybe even, you know, next year's coronation service for for King Charles. Does does Christianity kind of deserve its its kind of unique status in some of these uh, kind of the central life of, of the nation? I don't know. Do you have a view on that one, Emma? Yeah, it is a really interesting one. My, my background is not Church of England, so I'm, I'm not not an expert in all things Anglican. But actually, we've had several people writing on Christianity this year who are experts and um, and who have argued quite strongly, actually, that there, there's sometimes this perception from within, especially parts of the liberal media, that um, having bishops in the House of Lords, for example, is some kind of privilege that the church shouldn't have because we don't have a majority of people that 
are now identifying as Christian or, or, or an argument along those lines. When actually, you know, you could flip that on its head and say, this isn't actually a privilege. This is a service that the church renders to our democracy as a whole. And there are much, much bigger, wider questions to unpack if you want to get into what what does that look like uh, i mean some of those are very current now with, with labor currently tabling that they will um push for the dissolution of the house of lords if they get into power those discussions suddenly become very important how do we ensure that the church is serving the country in the way that it always has done and really should do hmm. the other thing that's really fascinating to me from the census is the almost the corresponding rise as Christians numbers fall year on year or every decade, every census, the number of people who tick the no religion box is kind of soaring. And that's up at at 37% um, from last year's census, which is a huge increase from 25% in 2011. Um, Do do you see, do you guys see that as a threat? Some, some, I know some Christian companies have said this is a really bad thing that it's, it's sad, but I, I wonder whether actually, as, as Sam said, this is just real, this is just honest, you know, it's actually, it's no good if people who actually don't have a belief in God and and don't follow any faith tick a box just because they feel like they should. I spent a bit of time in Texas in the Bible Belt this year, and I was speaking to an evangelist and he said, Texas is a really difficult place to do evangelism because everyone thinks they're a Christian already and they're not. And so on on that level, it's helpful, isn't it? We no longer live in a society where people think they're, they're Christian. They're actually quite clear that they're not. So you could argue that's helpful for evangelistic purposes. But I think most Christians will say, well, this is this is sad news. This is bad news. It's not surprising, but it's still sad, isn't it, that, um, that Christianity is not, um, you know, that our faith is not widely shared as it once was. Hmm. Um, should we come to you next, Emma? What what kind of stories from the last 12 months have jumped out at you or stuck in your memory? Oh, well, one of my favourites, actually, um, is the parliamentary prayer breakfast story. Um, this one, we've got to keep coming back to this. We know that 2022 has been a tumultuous and eventful year in British politics. But the, the fallout from this year's parliamentary prayer breakfast has perhaps captured more headlines than I'm I'm sure it's ever done in the history of its event. And it's been going a really long time. Normally, it's kind of a fairly niche event that that maybe only we talk about on Premier Christian Radio. Um, But this year, um, something quite big happened. Um, Sajid Javid, who was then the health secretary, tendered his resignation shortly after this year's prayer breakfast and told reporters and the House of Columns, his colleagues in in the house that he had in part been motivated by the sermon that he heard at the prayer breakfast and that event of course um then snowballed rather into lots of other resignations and eventually boris johnson stepping down two days later so the reflection on that form for me personally was really powerful hearing and reading the transcript of reverend les isaac's sermon we um he's the guy that started street pastors as a really well-known preacher and teacher who had actually been asked to preach that sermon um the year before but the event had been cancelled during lockdown and really felt that he was bringing a word in season to to our parliament and um yeah just to hear the volume of conversation, prayerful, thoughtful Christian conversation around integrity and leadership, what it means to be a public servant, um, I found really encouraging. So, though, yeah, that was one of my favourite stories. I know some people have raised slightly sceptical eyebrows at Sajid Javid's story. Are you one of the cynics, Sam, or do you buy into the kind of power of preaching? 
I'm not cynical, unusually, um, on this particular <laughs> subject. Sajid Javid has a um, is is a Muslim by background, and I found it really quite encouraging and remarkable that he would listen to an unashamedly Christian sermon from the Reverend Les Isaacs. And as Emma said, would tell his colleagues in the House of Commons that um, he'd been prompted by that to to say, actually, this is an integrity issue. I can no longer be in Boris Johnson's government. And then, of course, we all know what that led to. Um, we know as Christians that prayer is powerful, but it's actually quite rare, I think, to have an example, such a high profile example of that, that the whole world can see. You know, God does a lot in people's hearts behind closed doors that we never hear about. But this was a moment as Christian journalists, we could say, wow, look at the impact of a prayer breakfast on our entire political landscape. You know, within 48 hours of that sermon being given, the whole political landscape had changed. And Sajid Javid himself, not even a Christian, could could say that a prayer breakfast and a sermon played a part in his decision that then led to so many other things. So um, certainly one of those moments that don't come along very often um, that really take us all by surprise. And I, and I think is largely a positive story as, as well about the power of prayer and the need for integrity in our politics. And I guess it ties in a little bit what we were talking about just before about the census and the role of religion in public life is that actually this is a real affirmation that that even a small number of Christians, you know, who are minority in parliament, I suspect, um, can still have an outsized influence if they are prepared to kind of be bold and be salt and light in, in that kind of slightly murky world. Um, I'll go for one next, actually. This is a slightly uh, less massive story. It was from earlier in the year, but I was really fascinated by it. Um, it's the kind of the row that's broken out in the Vineyard Church movement in America after the founding church of the movement in a place called Anaheim in California announced in March that it was going to be quitting and becoming an independent church. Um, it, it's led by a Northern Irish couple, Alan and Catherine Scott, and they've kind of insisted that the departure is was amicable and there's no kind of big falling out but they just feel led by the spirit to to go it alone but it's led to this enormous kind of backlash from the rest of the vineyard usa church and and vineyard globally with people kind of accusing them of of kind of betraying john wimber who is this, obviously the kind of charismatic icon from the 1970s who founded both the vineyard and this anaheim church and kind of led it and, it and it's seen as the kind of mother church of the network i guess is the best example would be westminster abbey um quitting the church of england or st paul's cathedral or something like that uh, have you guys been following that story or i'm interested to know what you thought about it yeah it's um it's a really it is actually a really sad story for me i think because um, a decision like this caused a huge amount of upset locally. So, so as you say, you know, this is the main church of the denomination and the leaders deciding, I think, quite quickly, really. Um, and they did later apologize, I think, for the speed of their decision and perhaps the way it was communicated. You imagine being in a church and saying, we're the sort of center church of the denomination. And then suddenly your church leader standing up and saying, we're leaving. And that would have come as a real shock to a lot of people and, and a big disappointment for a lot of people. I think on the one hand, you've got to say, look, John Wimber has not been with us for some decades now. Amazing man, founded a church movement. I do think today's church leaders need to be free to make their own decisions and not just harken back to the past and tradition. And we've always done it this way. So on the one hand you want to say to Alan Catherine Scott you know you lead in the way that God has you leading today and don't be bound by your history on the other hand you'd also have to say you've got people in your congregation who have a such a strong affinity to this past to the vineyard to John Wimber it's a massive decision to take your church out of it and I think they have recognized that the way that they communicate that the way they did that was not ideal I think the addition to the story that, that for me just really emphasizes the sadness of it is how it's now actually turned to a legal dispute and how there's all sorts of now accusations flying around between Christians of the motives behind this.
this. And I think that's what I find most difficult about this story is we're no longer thinking or assuming the best in one another, but we're now assuming some really terrible motives on the part of the Scots that they're being accused of doing this for money and financial gain. And, you know, I want to be really careful as a Christian before giving that kind of view any kind of credence, because I do think we're called to think the best of the best of one another as much as we possibly can. Um, now, clearly, that that that, that, that person has their own reasons for bringing a lawsuit but it doesn't make christians look good does it when we're taking to each other to court over who owns what church building and who's part of what denomination so a really sad story for me uh, and a moment i think to pray for the vineyard movement of churches it's not my own personal church background but i got a lot of love respect and time for all that they've built and all they've done over the years both in the uk and internationally um so it's it's not been an easy year i think if you've been part of the vineyard church and and immersed in some of this uh, news that's been coming out of california yeah, it really strikes me as um, I agree with you. It's primarily quite sad. I think because it's almost like it's almost like a lose lose because the vineyard vineyarders who are left behind feel kind of bereft and betrayed, and the Scots and and the congregation, if they've kind of gone with them, haven't really had this transition be at all a positive thing. It's been a really contentious, quite bitter, quite divisive thing. So it feels really tragic that it's a lose lose. Um, but I did find it really kind of curious to think about like who who owns the church and like the vineyard isn't like the church of england it's not a denomination it's a kind of loose looser network and affiliation and so what does an individual congregation owe to its kind of family of churches and if there are no kind of legal ties but the rest of the vineyard church is saying you know we can't make you stay but but we'd really it's almost like a family member saying i don't want to be part of the family anymore it feels almost more personal than that so that was just really yeah, I found that one really, really quite striking. Emma, do you have any any reflections on that? Yeah, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? Discussing models of, of church. Um, I'm from a, a, a very loose denomination, the Assemblies of God, which is which is similar. You know, we have a, a national structure, but but each individual church is its own registered charity, its own board of trustees, and we, we, we're autonomous um, in all in all accounts, pretty much. And and that brings with it incredible freedom and, and I definitely wouldn't want it any other way it's the only kind of church I've ever known but it does like you say bring with it some very real challenges when things go wrong in a way that a, a more tight church structure like the church being a catholic church doesn't have those same challenges it's interesting because a similar point was raised by, by someone um, writing for me today on the, the southern baptist convention and stuff that's going on there with them um where a, a pastor who was earlier this year stepped down out of leadership over allegations of sexual abuse has been um, public re, publicly rehabilitated, for want of a better word, by four, four other pa- pastors from within the denomination. And basically the president of SBC has come out and said, absolutely not. We passed a resolution to say that this cannot happen. Um, and he, he went as far as to say that if it was up to him, he would defrock this guy, but that he can't because, again, SBC are a loose, denom- loose network of of churches that are sort of governed in a slightly different way so you've got all these really difficult things and in today's day and age when we are all connected via the internet and we can live stream into each other's churches and we can watch um, these online services when pastors get up and talk about very personal and difficult things with their local congregation but also you're viewing it halfway around the world and denominations choose to make public sets of documents and reports and things it's really challenging. In some ways, I love the transparency and it allows us to be much more accountable. But on the other hand, you know, I've, I've heard other people commenting on social media, actually what you're doing is sort of perhaps getting half the story from halfway around the world. And, and that's a real difficulty. In this particular case, um, Vineyard published huge amounts of documents, which 
um, Sam and myself and probably several other members of the Premier team lost hours of their life to reading and trying to understand. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Is it a good thing that we get all of that information, but we're not on the inside? So we obviously don't know all of it, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's it's, um, it's one of those stories that leads a slightly kind of sad taste in the back of the mouth, isn't it? There's no, there's no, there's no winners here. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Sam, should we look at another story? What what next caught your eye? Well, Tim, we set you the challenge of rounding up the entire year in an A to Z format. And you rose to that challenge, of course, beautifully. <laughs> On a normal year, uh, when you get to Q, that would be one of the more difficult letters. Um, how can I round up the year beginning with the letter Q? What subject could we possibly go mm. for on, in 2022? And of course, you can read this article, the next issue of Premier Christianity. But it was a sad year because Q, of course, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. We as a magazine put the Queen on the cover for the Jubilee. Remember that? Uh, in the summer, 70 years on the throne, all the celebrations we celebrate in her Christian faith. And then, of course, just a few months later, um, we ripped up everything we were going to do in that particular issue of the magazine and did a whole special edition on the Queen following her death. And there was so much to say, so much to say about her Christian faith, which clearly motivated her and the the deep impact her personal faith had. I think particularly of her Christmas speeches down through the years. In her latter years, she became more evangelistic, you could argue. Uh, I remember one person who um, watched one year's Queen's Christmas speech and went online and said, I was getting ready to hand out Bibles and pray for people after that five minute message from Her Majesty on the BBC. She became quite overt in her faith. Um, Catherine Pepinster, who's a royal watcher and knows lots about these things, has an interesting theory that it was actually the millennium that prompted Her Majesty the Queen to be more open about her Christian faith. If you remember the pictures of them all, all the political leaders, the Millennium Dome, and they're all crossing hands and singing Old Lang Syne together, there's a brilliant picture of the Queen not looking looking too impressed. And there is a theory that goes that the Queen was actually a bit disappointed that the turn of the millennium, 2000 years, there wasn't that much talk of it's 2000 years since the birth of Jesus. And if you listen to her Queen's Christmas speech from that year, she really did focus on the point of Christmas as we're remembering Jesus' birth. The point of this is it's 2000 years on. Um, so I, that was a little tidbit of information I picked up this year, but I, I could speak for hours on this because Emma and I uh, edited a lot of articles about the Queen's Christian faith. I don't think it's right that we celebrated that. We had lots of fantastic feedback on that issue of the magazine um, because she was an inspiration to so many Christians. Hmm. Yeah, it was so beautiful to hear to see so many tributes coming in from all sections of the church or walks of society. You know, it was an incredibly um, fast and busy paced few weeks where we hurriedly rejigged magazines to get special editions out, but um, but absolutely joyous and beautiful as well to to collate all of those amazing words that she said over the years and to pull together the. The, the references to her faith and the way that she'd inspired so many people. So, yeah, it was it was a really beautiful, sad and special time. And it was also really interesting. We had um, Graham Tomlin writing for us um, on the website and it also went into the magazine as well about the, the way that the country mourned the loss of the Queen and the real prominent role that the church played in that. So I guess it's sort of harking back to our previous conversation about, you know, should the church be disestablished now that um, less than half of us identify as Christian? It was interesting to watch uh, in the weeks after the Queen's death, 
how um hugely the, the the role that the church played in that and and watching the morning and the latent spirituality graham Tomlin called it that was coming out in the way that people wanted to process their grief and their pain and it was beautiful that the church could play a part in that hmm. i don't know how you guys felt but i felt there was almost a privilege and a huge weighty responsibility as a journalist to be there during this moment of kind of immense international historic significance you know people have been kind of preparing and not looking forward to obviously but kind of thinking forward about what's going to happen when the queen dies for literally decades and then suddenly it happened and we were all there and having to try to come up with some form of words or or text or something images that that kind of did justice to this it made me think of when I was a, an earlier in my career as a journalist, I used to do a few kind of overnight shifts for newspapers when there'd just be one or you'd be one of the only a handful of reporters on the ground at the paper. And I used to go into the shift at about five in the afternoon and just say, please, please don't let the Queen die tonight while I'm the only journalist around and have to write about that. <laughs> um, and then it happened. And, and you know, it, yeah, it felt like a privilege and, and a responsibility to actually kind of do justice to this. You know, people are going to be looking back at some of the things that, that us as the media produced around yeah. this moment, probably for, for decades to come. It would normally be around this time of year you'd be praying, please don't let the Queen die because I'm about to go on my Christmas holidays and I really don't want to have to be called back to the office in the middle of my Christmas holidays, uh, which is a prayer that every Christian journalist prays around this time of year. Um, but yeah, I mean, what an incredible... Uh, what an incredible person she was. And, um, you know, a lot of our analysis has since turned, of course, to King Charles and to what extent will he emphasise faith? We're looking ahead to the coronation next year. And I think there'll be lots to talk about there in terms of um, how much kind of modernising happens to the monarchy and whether faith is influenced by some of those decisions as well. We'll have to wait and see. Hmm. Let's try squeezing a few more stories. Um, Emma, what have you got next for us? OK, well, I think we should follow on from Q um, with R and uh, look at something that didn't happen on our shores, but um, Roe versus Wade, mm. fairly monumental decision by the US Supreme Court earlier this year to overturn um, the the right to an abortion in the States, which had some fairly wide ranging um, responses, um, a lot of comment from across a lot of Christians in the States um, saying this is what they've been campaigning for for decades Lots of Christians equally saying no, that they they um, they respect a woman's right to choose what she does with her own body. Um, it's created a lot of conversation and here on our own shores as well. So it'll be interesting over weeks and months and years probably to see how that impacts the UK church as well. There are certainly a lot of Christians here in the UK that feel we don't talk about abortion enough. There are others um, that think that it's an entirely private and very sensitive area and, and we shouldn't wade into it too much. There's been the stories in recent months about um, the buffer zones around abortion clinics starting to pop up in Bournemouth and in London and in parts of Scotland. And that is now being potentially enshrined in law. So there's a lot going on in the in the field of abortion. And we've reflected as a magazine, we try to cover these big topics quite regularly um, every year or every 18 months. Sometimes when when these these perennial topics come around, we feel that there's not a lot of new stuff to say about something. That's certainly not the case with abortion this year. And it's hugely divisive. And, and one of those really sensitive areas, I think it's going to be incredibly important to have a good, um, comprehensive, but also 
fruitful Christian discussion about, not one that sort of just there's lobbing bombs from each side that that just creates more division because it's something that has got the potential to alienate so many people, but it's also something that potentially affects 50% of the population and, and needs to be handled with incredible sensitivity. Hmm. I was also really struck by how what was obviously an intensely American story and that only actually chained things on the ground in America seemed to completely kind of re-energize the debate in this in this country as well on both sides you know you saw you saw kind of pro-life uh, kind of Christians and charities kind of really emboldened and said right this is something to aspire towards and then you saw kind of pro-choice side say you know hold this up as a as a specter and almost say like this is what is coming down the track if you don't fight for your rights and yeah and I think it's probably a healthy thing. I think there is probably too much kind of squeamishness in English and British culture about talking about abortion often, both in the church and beyond. So I, I personally think, yeah, more dialogue, more conversation, more more thinking, probably only be a good thing. What, what do you say, Sam? Well, for me, this is an issue that highlights the gulf between American evangelicalism and, and British evangelicalism. Um, rightly or wrongly, the American church is known for being, frankly, obsessed uh, with this issue. And um, the UK church is rightly or wrongly known for being too shy and, and not bold enough. And, and I do think there are there are massive differences culturally. And um, even though evangelicals are broadly coming from a pro-life perspective on both sides of the Atlantic, I think the way that is worked out looks very different. Um, I, I do think the accusation that's always thrown at, at pro-lifers, which is shouldn't you care about uh, the mother as much as the child's is um, is important that that UK evangelicals continue to to show that we do that both both lives matter to quote the evangelical alliance campaign on, on this issue certainly the the British Christians I know do amazing care for uh, for vulnerable young women whilst also being firmly pro-life um, when it comes to to pregnancy and birth and everything else so I, I think you know a holistic approach to this issue of of caring about everyone involved is really important. And I'm sure many American evangelicals would say amen to that. Unfortunately, the stereotype is that they don't. The stereotype or the accusation is always, but you only care about the issue of abortion. You don't care about the more holistic issues. So that's the challenge, I think, for 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 all of us. If you're going to identify with that pro-life label, as indeed most Christians do, then prove you're pro-life on everything. Um, I hesitate to even bring it up. But again, the issue of guns, um, it's been accused, hasn't it? American evangelicals, well, you care about pro-life when it's a young baby, but what about on the issue of life when it comes to the death? Death penalty or or gun violence, um, and so again, I think we need to be advocating for a holistic approach to being whole life and I, uh, for being pro life, excuse me. And I think that's the best way forward for for both for both nations. But I don't want to be too critical of the Americans because I think they would quite rightly attack us and say you're very quiet, you're very reluctant to really preach on this issue. And there might be good pastoral reasons for that. Uh, Premier Christianity ran a cover story a couple of years ago now where we looked at this issue of why are most churches quite silent really on the issue from the pulpit and looked at some of the reasons why pastors would give for not wanting to to tackle it in that format and we had a good hearty discussion on the issue as to exactly how the church should engage with the issue it is incredibly emotive incredibly difficult and um i think the only other thing to say on it is that there are some christian charities that are excellent on the practical the pastoral the caring and there are other organizations that are great on the advocacy i think it's very difficult to do both in the same church the same organization or even the same person you're kind of either a great speaker advocate or you're great at doing the pastoral sort of private uh, care on it and how we combine both i'm not sure um not sure the answer to that hmm. yeah definitely i think that's that's really true um just before we finish i thought i'll throw in one more story that caught my eye um i think it didn't quite get as much attention as it really deserved and that was the retirement of nikki gumbel 
in July. Uh, Nicky Gamble, famously the vicar of not HTB. as much attention as it deserves, Tim. Did I you know not it was see on the front, the front cover, cover of Christianity, of Christianity magazine. magazine? But you know, for the for the handful of Christians who haven't read Christianity this year, <laughs> I thought it didn't quite break out of out of this little zone. Um, but it's a momentous story in a way, you know. Nicky Gumbel, uh, the vicar of HDB and the head of Alpha, um, retiring after 17 years uh, in the pulpit there in, in Kensington in West London. Um, and obviously kind of had personally overseen the kind of growth of HDB to become this almost the only kind of English megachurch, you could really argue, as well as this kind of hub of a network of what is now, I think, well over 100 congregations around the country and many more beyond side. Uh, um I know he was, you know, extensively and excellently interviewed in in Christianity magazine. Uh, what what were your kind of reflections on what this kind of moment counted, or am I just kind of blowing it out of proportion? Well, I mean, I did the interview, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I said I got the pleasure of sitting down with him for an hour, and I think the first thing that really struck me was the fact that I think he would hate the fact that we've used the word retired in any kind of reference to him. It became very it became very apparent very quickly, like literally, I don't know, 30 seconds in that that he was not going to be sitting in a corner and smoking his pipe anytime soon, that he might be stepping down as the leader of HDV, that he, that he still feels he has an awful lot to do. So for me, I was I was hugely um, impressed with his energy, with his drive, with his vision. Um, I mean, I, I guess you don't get to the position that he gets to or, you know, create the legacy that he's created without being incredibly driven and, and visionary. Um, but but even still, I, I, I was hugely impressed with the with what he felt very clearly God still had for him to do and the way that he was proactively handing over and the humility with which he refused to take credit for nearly all of the things that we've just spoken about and that I was kind of asking so what's the secret to this how did you build this you know he's kind of like it's team it's team you know it's other people it's I'm just building on a legacy it was the stuff I was given so you know uh, I I was um, incredibly honoured to, to do that interview and to hear his story and to, and to write that up for the magazine and and I, I think that what he said in that interview is true. He believes the best is still to come for not only for HTB, but for, for the UK church and for the evangelization of the nation, which is what HTB always says that it's about. And um and I'm I'm praying, I'm I'm with him. I, I think it's I think it's gonna come. Sam, what do you think the legacy of Nicky Gumble will be? Still to be written, of course. He's not finished, but uh <laughs> Uh, he's an amazing man. You won't you won't find me criticizing Nicky Gumbel in a hurry. I, I just think you know, as we've already mentioned um, on the show today, there's a lot of bad news out there, isn't there? Let's be honest, uh, both in the Christian and the mainstream world. And I just think Nicky Gumbel and HTB are, are doing some incredible work and have done for for decades now. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Don't get me wrong, but I think in the main, look at look at how Alpha has has resulted in quite literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming to faith. I mean, you can't, you know, you won't find me arguing against that as a, as a Christian. I think that's superb. Um, you know, the, 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 their passion for church planting, for renewing the church, um, specifically the Church, church of England. Um, and, and Nicky Gumbel has, has achieved a huge amount. As Emma says, he's not retiring. I actually think what he's going on to do is fascinating. He told Emma a little bit about this in the interview. He's actually working with Rick Warren on getting a Bible and um, what is it? A Bible, a believer, and something else into every 
every community by the time by the time of 2033. So 2033 yeah. is, of course, um, 2,000 years since the res- death and resurrection of Jesus. So they've sort of said by 2033, can we get the Bible into more places? Can we expand Alpha even further than it already has? Can we get new churches planted? And, and that 2033 vision, I think, is is incredible. And we'll certainly keep Nicky Gumbel very, very busy. Um, and, and again, you know, in, in an age where we have to report on bad church news, including about church leaders, it's just been wonderful to really celebrate Nicky Gumbel this year not to add to any kind of uh celebrity because he would hate that and we don't want to do that but we do want to honor our leaders and say thank you and well done nikki gumbel um if it weren't for nikki gumbel my wife would not be my wife uh because i met stacy i met stacy on an alpha course um so we actually had the opportunity to meet nikki gumbel um, because we both work as journalists and interview him once and what i was so struck by was we told him this kind of laugh said oh you know we met through doing alpha and I was really struck by his genuineness of the way he, he said to, to my wife, oh, wow, you became a Christian Alpha. That's amazing. And the genuineness, it was almost as if it was almost as if Nicky Gumbel had never met anyone before who'd become a Christian on Alpha. He was so excited and genuinely happy uh, to meet someone who had that story. And I thought, isn't that lovely? So a really genuine man, a fantastic church leader, one I have a huge amount of respect for. And it's been lovely to celebrate him this year. Hmm. Amen. Amen to all of that. Well, that's a lovely note to end, a much more upbeat note to say goodbye to 2022 with. Uh, thanks so much, Sam and Emma, for joining us in this little whistle-stop tour of what we've uh, been been reading and writing about in the church news. Um, I'm sure we'll speak to you again on the show next year. But uh, happy Christmas and happy new year. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 